Hey, what's going on, everybody? Thank you so much for downloading this episode of So What Do You Really Do? The podcast where I, your host, Dead Air Dennis, talk to artists and entertainers about their day job. Uh, my episode today is actually with a friend uh, named Robin Perkins. She is a comedian. She's from Boston, moved to London, started comedy, and now she's been actually pretty successful with it, which is good for her. Uh, she's, at the time of this interview, she just started going, um, doing comedy full time, quit her day job. I was doing comedy. Uh, we'll go into that a little bit. You'll hear that. Um, and I actually was lucky enough to run into her last night. She's back here in the States uh, for the holidays. She was here for about three, almost four weeks. And uh, I saw her last night. We hung out for a little bit. She was on a show. She was very funny, working new material. Uh, and it was a good time. It was good seeing her again. And luckily, still uh, surviving solely off doing comedy, which is good because she also didn't work that much when she was here. Uh, when she was telling me last night, she was like, yeah, I've done like nothing comedy-wise since I came to the States. And I was like, Eesh. but good for her uh, that everything been, and the comedy side has been working out for. All right, she is the kind of person that pisses me off because, and we'll go a little bit into it towards the end of the podcast, she is the person that doesn't really plan on doing anything and then does it and is really good at it. And that's kind of annoying. <laughs> but uh, like... Her job, uh, she 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 did architecture, knew nothing about architecture, decided she just wanted to do it, and then did it and became successful at it. Uh, comedy had no no desire to do comedy, and then she just decided to start doing comedy one day, stand up, and became really good at. It. And it's kind of annoying, but good for her. She's very good. She's a very funny person, and uh, apparently smart and lucky. But good for her. Anyway, uh, yeah, when we did this interview, uh, it was. A uh, six months ago, and it was a hell day. I was just late getting down to meet her because we were. Do- she was staying with her sister in an area called Jamaica Plain, which is south of Boston. Um, I live in like what's called, considered West Boston, and I work just outside of Boston, uh, in a suburban area, just moments away. It doesn't matter, or um, geographically wise. But trying to get down there on a tee, I was running late. I was rushing, um, and then. Like, I decided just, and I was use, doing it on a Zoom down in my studio here that I've since built, uh, start, since I started this podcast, I built a studio in a spare room. And by built a studio, I meant I took a bunch of spare parts and made a studio out of them because I have all kinds of stuff just lying around. Uh, it was worse when I was in Baltimore, when I had space to put stuff. I had so much just junk equipment that I got rid of when I moved to Boston here, but I'm still keeping a, a hold of a lot of junk equipment. Anyway... I uh, rushed all the way down to Jamaica Plain the meter, and I was, as I was walking up the house, I just pulled out the Zoom, hit record, and I just started recording like the moment I rang the doorbell. So it's going to be a little, uh, there's a little editing in there, but basically you'll hear her just walk right up to the door. It's like, hello, and then we um, talk. And the reason I do that, um, and I do the same thing here in the studio, what I do is I just start the recorder before anybody's here. When somebody's coming over here in my place to record, I tell them, just text me when you're outside. Don't ring a bell or anything. Just text me. That way I can... Meet them outside and let them in. And what I do is I hit record and I go out and I meet them. And we start talking naturally. Hey, what's up? What's going on? Yeah, hey, come on in. How was the, did you have trouble finding here? Are you parking? Blah, blah, blah. How was this other thing? And as we're coming in the studio, we're still talking. The reason I do that is because I want people to, to have a natural flow into conversation. Uh, we are naturally, as people, we naturally become different when we know we're being recorded, whether it's microphones, whether it's cameras, usually cameras because people see them um, and you can look at them. Microphones tend to, to, you tend to easily forget more about, but except for when they're like right here in your face, the way they are in my studio, uh, they're pretty large. They're not much space in here. So it's kind of hard to ignore them, but 
I used to do a internet radio show when I was in college where I interviewed bands, and I always noticed that people were always on their guard as soon as the microphones went on. And I noticed, like, it was the same thing every time when bands were in the studio. They'd be lively and joking around before we go to them, you know, in between songs or while songs are playing. I'd be talking to them. They'd be joking around and having a good time and being loud and, and, and great. And then as soon as we go to their interview part and the microphones came on, they got scared. You know, it's like, hey, uh, I got Devil's Radio here in the studio. Guys, why don't you go ahead and uh, introduce yourselves and say hi to the audience? Hello. You know, like, they would just become frightened of the microphones all of a sudden as soon as they know that they're on. Uh, because they're not used to doing that things. And the same thing with my friends and other comedians. Yeah, we talk into a microphone on stage in front of people, but we're also not used to being open and natural in conversation or being interviewed by other people. So we have that, that natural guard up. And I do the best I can as my personality during the interview to make people feel comfortable and feel like they can just open up and talk that they're not being grilled or trying to that I'm trying to find something secretive to I just want them to talk I just want to have a chat a conversation that's what I'm trying to record and that's what I do with this that's one of my little tricks is to already talking we're already in here sit down bam we're already going you don't even realize that we have started you know it works for some people um I feel like it's working I guess for the interviews that I'm having now, uh, it's a little more tricky editing, but that's that's not a problem. Editing is pretty easy, you know. Yes, I could not edit out the conversation walking down the hall where it's a benign conversation, but I don't want to. Um, you know, like my conversation last week with last week's episode with John Paul. You know, I started the recorder as soon as I saw him walking into my backyard because, like, if you listen to it, I recorded the episode in my backyard because I don't know why not. Uh, we had a good time. That's why I wanted to do it, but. Now here in the studio, they don't see the mics. They see, you know, they just come in and they sit down. And they pull right up to it and they they realize in the middle of sentence, they pull right up to the mic and then they start talking and we just keep going and flowing and it works. But with John Paul, I still felt he was a little bit guarded. Not as in he was hiding anything, but I think he felt a little intimidated with the recorders around. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. John's a great guy. Um, it seemed to me like he was overly conscious about what he was going to answer before each thing he said. I don't know. Maybe that's that. Maybe that's the way John is. And I never noticed it until the podcast or not, or, you know, maybe it wasn't as comfortable of a situation as I wanted it to be. But and also like when we walked in, we immediately started talking about the recorder. So there was no, not forgetting the recorder was there. Like, like uh, I am pretty sure I edited a well, Positive. I edited out the beginning of the conversation, which is just me and John Paul sitting there talking about the recorder and how it works and what it can do and stuff like that and geeking out. And then at the end, again, we, we geek out. Uh, I geek out all over him about the recorder and the microphones and stuff like that because I am a tech nerd and I love that stuff. That's why I have all these things just sitting around where I could build a studio. So, But anyway, that day with Robin, I think it was a great conversation. It was definitely one of those, uh, I don't know if I left it in or not, to be honest with you, uh, where she's like, uh, should we start recording, by the way? Like, we're half hour, 45 minutes into a conversation. She's like, should we start the podcast, by the way? I was like, oh, I started it at the door. She's like, oh, oh, damn it. Uh, Like, did I say anything that I shouldn't have? And she didn't. She's fine. She's great. Um, Sparkling personality, very funny. And so it was a very open and natural conversation. Um, the audio's not great because there's just the Zoom in a room. There's a little bit of echo and bounce. Most people's not going to notice that. I'm pretty sure most of you would not even notice nor cared about it had I not brought it up. And I don't know why I brought it up. And, of course, I have the opportunity to be able to, to delete this part, cut it out of this intro, so you never hear it and you'll never think about it. But uh, that's not what I'm going to do. I'm going to leave it in. 
I'm, I'm going to be comfortable with leaving in me pointing out my own mistakes. So anyway, let's get into the podcast because uh, it's a great talk her and I had about you know her being a woman in comedy and the difference between comedy here in America and in London. That those are things that interest you. This is going to be a little deep into it. Um, if you're an Anglophile like me, maybe you'll recognize some of the names that she mentions when she talks about comedy. Uh, I did not. <laughs> I don't think there was a name that I that I recognize except for maybe like Jimmy Carr, and I might have been the one that brought him up. But uh, or we definitely said Billy Connolly. Very all right. Anyway, let's get into the podcast. With my friend, marine biologist, architect, comedian, Robin Perkins. Hello. Hey, what's up? Come Sorry about that. Oh, no worries at all. What a terrible, terrible day. Uh, how'd the show at the comedy studio go? Uh, it was interesting. Um... <laughs> You were Wednesday, right? Yeah, it was Wednesday. Did you yeah, hear about... I've heard... heard yeah. Things, yeah. Um, uh, and we, then, we don't have to mention names. Yeah, no. Because uh, I know who we will speak, be speaking of. So. Yeah, no. <laughs> The conversation apparently about Caitlyn Jenner. Uh, oh, I didn't hear... That's what I heard about. Oh, wait, what was Somebody that? Somebody was upset about a uh, comedian set mentioning Caitlyn Jenner. And not even as oh. a joke, but basically just talking... If it's who I think it was, because I wasn't there. Yeah, um, but if it's who I think it was, I know he was on the show, and he did the same thing on Monday on the show with me. He was just like, "So uh, Bruce Jenner used to be a guy, used to be an Olympic athlete. No, no, it's a girl. I think that's kind of funny, right?" Huh? And a couple comedians got mad about that, uh, obviously, because it's not even a joke. It's like yeah. you're mentioning somebody else's life, and then no, oh, funny, funny. Yeah, okay, mentioning some. It's like, yeah, one is it? it it's not tactful to to, to just be like <laughs> pointing fingers and laughing. Uh, but also, there's a difference between like crafting a joke that's and funny just, and crafting yeah. a joke. Like seeing a guy slip on yeah. a banana peel is funny. Yeah. Talking about a guy slipping on a banana peel is not, not a okay. joke. Yeah. You know. It's yeah. That kind yeah. Of thing. yeah. Like, no, um, absolutely. Um, no, I I was because I, I missed some of the sets because um, Chris Coxon was there. Yes. Who, yes, and, and he, Jimmy Tingle. Um, yeah, and but Chris was in London, so after so we I went back to I used to say hi, and then we just started talking about London for a while. Um, so I missed like three or four sets, so that's probably when it happened. Oh, okay. And then uh, um, other comedians were just like, "Oh, there was terrible people in the show anyway." Yeah, there was the, well, yeah, there were some there was some weaker point. Well, a bit, yeah, there were some weaker points, and then. And it's, I mean, it's not against those people. They have to grow and learn and, and yeah. take their lumps like we all did. Trust me. I've eaten many a plate of dicks on stage. Yeah. <laughs> no, I know. And, like, it, it was uh, it was just, yeah, it was, uh, like, the crowd weren't giving a lot anyway from the start. And I don't know how he orchestrated the lineup if there was a lot of I thought in terms of the order. But I... I think, um, who was it? Emily. Because that Emily, there was like a changing point. Do you know, I don't forget her surname. It's a... Wiskowski? Yeah, yeah. Yes. So she was supposed to go second, but she was doubling, so ended up going like middle of the show. Yeah, and there she was, was a, on my show that night too. Oh, uh, okay, yeah. So there was a massive um, <laughs> turning point when she went on. Just because I think that like... Um, she did our, I think she did our show first because she showed up just yeah. as we were starting. And it would have been and a different show. she was first show. show. Yeah. It would have been a different show if she or some of the higher energy acts were earlier on in the night or some of the stronger acts were earlier on in the night and it just took a while to get going and then there wasn't enough consistent strong people and then also I know everybody gets a tight five but like the 
more experienced people like saw the bill length and went between like four and four thirty, and then the less experienced people were going like too long, too long. Yeah. And so, like with that juxtaposition, it was hard to really. And I think no that momentum. yeah, yeah. Again, like I did all right, but some of like it was some of the jokes that land everywhere. People just were like, mm, I don't know. Like it, like I did well, but it was like like one in particular which I like it was just I don't know if they like didn't get it or what it well, was. There was this weird thing going on, and it's weird, weird that you talk about the crowd wasn't really into it, and the shows this or that, whatever. With the studio that I've noticed recently, that people have been blaming bad audience on the studio a lot lately, or it seems so to me. I'm not saying that. Yeah, it seems which so I hate doing. Yeah, I don't want the way. bad audience like, as much as possible because any act should be able to. Um, like, I, do you um, have you ever heard of Landry? Uh, he's American. Well, no, he's Canadian, actually. Landry. Just uh, Landry? Landry. No, I feel like it's he, the last name that I've heard. But no, it's just his first name. It was like John um, Landry or something. So Landry comes over to the UK, and he. I run a club every Wednesday. It's just like a proper club and gets big audiences and whatever. Um, but he had done a couple open mics with um, a couple Canadian, or like a UK acts that know him. And the first one was fine. Like it was, it was an open mic just stacked with a bunch of pros because all of the people that knew Landry came and did this open mic. It was mm-hmm. like the most, the best bill that open mic has ever had and will ever have <laughs> in history. Yeah. That, that, oh that my night. God. It was ridiculous. But the second night, sometimes I am see like this, awful like it's like the shittiest open mic ever in existence it's like if you took the corner of like an old irish pub bunch full of like a bunch of 50 year old um men with tourette's yeah okay yeah (laughs) and then you just stick a mic in the corner of the room like literally it's not it's just they don't even know comedy's going on and you try to do that with like open mic quality acts it was like it's a death zone like people are you if you get one person listening like yay um and one person listening it's by accident yeah it is like it is like the first time I did it, um, I have a foldable bike, and um, there were like four acts that actually showed up. And one act went on twice just to see because he was like, I want another go. He described them as the nicest, unplayable crowd ever because it's not like they hate you, but they're just they don't listen. And I they don't actually hate you, they just don't care, they don't care. Yeah. I actually had a unfolding and folding bike competition on stage uh, with another would, act, yeah. And that was folded the fastest, that was the highlight of the night. And <laughs> The, the the best thing was so after after so then all the acts go then the headliner Jerry the Hat comes on stage and reads off a bunch of internet jokes this is yeah right from pieces of paper he's not even trying to claim them let me, let me sign louder so I make sure the microphone picks it up <sighs> <laughs> and uh, sorry so he goes on and then um, and then a woman pulls an accordion out of her purse and it turns into a sing song like sing along like it was. I have a photo of it. It's amazing. Anyway, so I've done this gig uh, a few times because I MC it, and it's a Tuesday night, and I'll do anything for money. But... <laughs> There's nothing wrong with that in yeah. this business. So I go, and uh, me and, like, three other pros go down there with a couple open micers, uh, Landry being one of them, two guys that know Landry, and I told them, I was like, look, if you get 
any other gig, take it. Like yeah. any of any like don't come in. It, it is the worst gig. Um, if you'd rather just shout at people in the park, take that over there. More people will listen and they're like, How could could it be? And then afterwards they were like, You did warn me. You <laughs> did warn me. And we go on and it's all just like when we're workshopping material, it's helpful to have like comics that you know and write with. So we all go together because we're like at the very least, it's a mic and we'll give feedback and whatever. So we go up and we do our thing and um and people were just it was just harder than it normally is, which is saying a lot and people like it's just they're there's fighting and there's like they have a football game on TV with the noise, noise on the at the same time. The bar is like it's like twice the size of this room and um, everything's everything's working against you at this yeah. place. And like some one of my friends went up there and was like, Well, you don't want to hear jokes, which is also not the way to win a crowd because that's just insulting them yeah. anyway. So everybody's you're saying telling them what they want. Yeah. And then and so you're just going, This is unplayable, it's unplayable, like there's no way you can work with this crowd and then Landry just goes on and just rips it. And, like, all of us were just going, how did he do that? Oh, so actually, it's never really the fault of the crowd. Like, you, there are better crowds and worse crowds. There are definitely crowds that go in there, and you don't have to say anything. They'll just, like, laugh and applaud, and you can pick your nose, and they'll love it. Which is typically the studio, generally. Not to say that it's an easy room. Um, I think one of the, what somebody has told me once after I moved here to the walls is like, yeah, if you can crush the studio, all that means is you can crush the studio. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But I've noticed, and I'm, again, I've, every time I've done the studio, I've pretty much bombed, uh, whether there's been a crowd <laughs> there or not, which you can't blame bombing when there's nine people in the audience and t- 10 comedians who are, know the dumb bit about me being in jail. They've heard it a hundred times already. <laughs> can't fault anybody for not going, eh. Yeah, like, at least that you know for just five minutes of, you know, like you yeah. can't fault them for that. But I've been in rooms where I've walked off just like, ugh, that was terrible. And I, you know, like yeah. I have the I have the problem with quicksand. Like once one problem goes wrong, then it like if I if one joke doesn't land, especially at the beginning, if if if, if the first joke doesn't land, uh, I'm 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 shit for I'm shit for the whole rest of the thing. Yeah, uh, and it's that's not good. Like I just start snowballing and just falling back and then it's just terrible um but i've had enough problems with the studio where i even walk off stage and i'm like oh i just i died up there i did nothing they're like oh dude you did fine it's them they're a problem they've been a problem the whole show i'm like are you sure because i remember hearing them laugh at other people they did not laugh at me maybe i got a giggle they're like no nah, it's definitely the audience and i know there's not the, the the people who would said this to me aren't the kind of People are just like, they don't like me enough to, to be like, no, Dennis, you're fine. They don't like me enough to, to yeah. patronize me. They'll be like, if I suck, they're like, yeah, no, you're terrible. You're awful. That's how little they, they think of me that they'll say that out loud. But I've been hearing a lot of people just say, even when I ask them about the students, like, ah, dude, crap, wasn't into it. And I don't know if I'm just picking up on all the times people say that. Yeah. And I'm, I'm making it a bigger deal in my head than what it really is. I don't know. But it seems like... Recently, there's been a lot, a lot of problems with maybe the people. I mean, he's cultured a great audience there. Yeah. Great, great well, it's a following, and it's a you know people. Yeah. So I don't know. I think I I don't know. I don't know what it was on the night. Maybe it was just a combination of a bunch of things. But at the end of the day, like there were some people who did really really well, um, and I think that there's also some audiences that really enjoy it but don't show it vocally, which is so frustrating. Have you done the Middle East, Mike? Okay. Uh, yeah. That's that's I and I figured out with the Middle East microphone, uh, oh, microphone, the Middle East open mic. That's the key to not walking off stage and wanting to test the weight limit of your ceiling fan. Is you yeah. look for the laughs, 
don't listen for them because the room's very narrow and long. Yeah. It's very high and it's, it's packed with comics. And very recently, we've been getting it, we, they've been getting a pretty good crowd there of people just like, yeah, I'm here to see the show. I'm here to see the open mic. And they're laughing, they'll pay attention. Um, and I do have a good story about that if we ever get to it. But <laughs> yeah, about this week at the open mic, at the, at the release. But the point was uh, that I've, I've come to realize that if I'm looking at people, which I do, I always look people in the eyes when I'm doing my jokes. I'm not one of those yeah. like, I have to stare over people because if I look at somebody, I freak out. No, I have to look at people. I have to see what they're doing. I have yeah. to watch. But if you, at the, at the Middle East, if you look for the laughs instead of listen for them, you'll get a better yeah. feel for your, your things. Because people are giggling themselves and it's still kind of hard to hear in that room anyway. So if you're seeing enough people smiling and nodding and their mouth going, <laughs> Yeah, then you, it's fine. You, yeah. yeah, then you know you're doing a little bit better than just trying to listen for a smattering of yeah. giggles. So, anyway. Um, what did, did you just come in town for from... Because you're, you're living in London now. You've yeah. been a couple years. Well, six years now. And six I started years. stand-up in London. So I, which is kind of an odd place to be in because I have an advantage coming back here because I know the culture, but I started over there. So my style and everything is like British comedy. Which tends to be very, uh, from what I understand and what I've seen, is pretty punny in the the most. Mm. It's very one-linery still and very pun- Pun-centric. Uh, mm, I don't know. I don't know. I, that's interesting to hear. Because I don't yeah, really know. I I do. There are. I think there's just a bigger diversity of styles okay. in the UK. And I've been talking to a few people about this. Which I mean, to know like the big time London uh, UK comedians, you really have to be deep into the comedy knowledge because everyone knows Jimmy Carr. Yeah, and they know like the old, older heads, Eric Idle and like uh, the uh, uh, Billy O'Connell. Connolly. Connolly. Billy, Billy Connolly. <laughs> yeah. Like, pe- most people know who they those guys are. Outside of that, like, who's doing really well? It is. Nobody has a clue. It, it is amazing. And because I, I've played this game with other, like, UK, or with US people when I come home, and I'm like, Daniel Kitson, you've never heard of Daniel. Like, that man, like, sells out within five seconds before he it's even been announced like people <laughs> just stalk him and follow him and he's just like the legends of comedy that um like it just don't come over here and it's interesting because everybody in the uk kind of has this view that american comedy is like is the epicenter of everything and the great oh, global the comedians of everything but apparently. well except soccer yeah <laughs> Which you'd get shot if you called it that over there. Anyway, I. Oh, I know. Um, but well, it, but I think it's more so. Uh, it's seen more in a positive light than everything, because Americans are not uh, looked highly upon in a lot of other remits of the world. I know it's, it's shocking. Um, how how many times a day do you tell people like, no, not American, Canadian? Yeah, uh, no, I do. I, I have I have jokes about it. My opening line in the UK is, I'm American, but don't worry, I'm from a bit of the States close enough to Canada, which means I'm not a prick. So, and, like... <laughs> then you tell you're from Boston, and you're like, oh, you're lying, you are a prick. Yeah. <laughs> but um, but in terms of comedy, it, you know, they, they see the great global superheroes, both historically and present, as American comics. And, uh, like, Dave Chappelle, I think, sold out, like, ridiculous ticket prices in, you know, like, five minutes in the UK at London. He's coming over. He's, like, added extra dates. It's, it's, it's ridiculous. But um, I think when you look at the actual live circuit, like, the normal live circuit, like, the shows that I go to and I perform in, uh, there's a 
much bigger diversity of styles and acts and a bigger set of risks taken than on the U.S. circuit. Now, but I say that with a huge bias because I am very limited in the live comedy that I've seen in the States, which yeah. is primarily just the shows that I'm performing in and shows in the New Hampshire, Massachusetts. In the New England area. In yeah. the New England area. Yeah, well, it's, it's weird because I'm from Baltimore and I've been here two and a half years. And one of the things that I noticed that's different here than it is uh, in Baltimore is there's a ton of, and this is a great thing, it's not a bad thing, there's a ton of female comedians here. Yeah. Like, there's literally any any regular show in Boston probably has more women on the show than there is all of the Baltimore comedy scene. Yeah. Like, yeah. there's not very many, and not to, to, to point fingers or, or to say bad things, but there are, the, the ones that are, in, like, half of them are terrible. Not because they're women, just because they're terrible. But if you look at male comedians, like half of them are also terrible. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, Yeah, it just, it also seems like a bigger number when you have fewer people. (laughs) Yeah. Like if you keep seeing, if you see 10 people and five of them are bad, that seems like a bigger, bigger amount of things than it is if you see 20 people and 10 are bad. Even though you're seeing more numbers of bad, you're still seeing more good. Yeah. I don't know if that math makes any sense. It's basically a perception. Well, it's true, because the, I mean, there's, it's interesting. Like women are. In the UK, um, I think there's less women in comedy in the UK, I think, probably, than in New England, definitely. I don't know about outside of New England. Um, and plus, the women here are great, too. That's, yeah. that, that's the other thing. Like, everybody at the level of comedy here is fantastic. And when I moved here, first of all, my gay dad, I'm watching everybody, and I'm just like, oh, i got to step up my game. Yeah. Oh, Jesus, <laughs> God. Oh, no. But even the women comedian here, comedians for the most part, are fantastic. But uh, you said that uh, you can go back to England. Too. Um, I, well, I think it's interesting. It's something that's been recognized in the last few years. Um, that no, you have a tag on your, you still have the size tag on your yeah, shirt. Yeah, no, this is the first time I wore it. It's okay. exciting. It's like a cheesy It was bothering me because I could see it slightly reflecting because it's plastic. Um, All right, there we go. Yeah. Yep. I was I, trying not to say that. I'm like, it's just going to be distracting. I'm not going to fine. It's ahead. fine. Uh, it's an ugly shirt and it's bright <laughs> fluorescent. Like, you can't <laughs> not look at it. Anyway. Uh, it's so loud, the microphone's picking it up. I know, it is. It's, <laughs> anyway, so. <laughs> Women comedian. Comedian. Right, comedian. so I think that it's it's been recognized in the last few years um, that, like, there is a very, it's a very male heavy industry. Oh. And. There, there are certain promoters that are trying to do something about it. I think it's, it was a really great time to start comedy for, like, to, to as from the comedy side of things, to start it six, eight years ago. Because the, if you look at the open mic level, it's much more balanced. Like, but if you look at the headliner level, it's very lopsided. Mm-hmm. However, especially on TV and headlining clubs in that level, um, the industry is trying to push women more. And so in, in a way, uh, from being a comic, you get more opportunities at that level right now because they're trying to push you. Um, and hopefully that will stay until the gender balance is there. Having said that, there's a risk because there's the public perception in England is that women aren't funny. You know, and I'm, yeah. I'm sure ever. Same here, And it, it's frustrating because the amount of times I've had women come up to me after shows and go, I don't like female comedians, but you're funny. Like, women say this to me. And, I mean, never mind, like, male promoters going, or, like, you're funny for a woman, or yeah. you're, you know, something like that. Um, and that's weird because I always felt like Europe and England in particular a much more progressive country than we are here in, in the States. That, it, yes. Um... 
I, yeah, I mean, I think that it's, it's hard, and there's been a lot of discussion as to why that is. I know, like, over here, again, if you're a pro comedian, you're traveling a lot. Um, England is small, so you can drive to Scotland in eight hours, and I'm, you know, like, you Isn't there from a London. Isn't water in between the two? No. <laughs> from London I mean, to I'm not Scotland. Worried. Just off the top of my head, I could have, they're no. connected? Okay, that made me look foolish. Yep. Kiss the part's getting cut out. <laughs> Damn it, why can't I choose so? Anyway. I'll leave it in. Oh, no, it's fine. Uh, but I think that well, what, one of the things that people are suggesting that why there's less female um, headliner comics is because they don't want to have the life on the road. And then it's a lifestyle choice is that once you get to a certain level, then you actually decide to quit and have a family a and that it's whatever. Yeah. Right. plus being on the road for a woman is much more unfortunately much more uh, tough and, and, and dangerous than it is for a man um I mean I was see, more or less I don't the entire point that. That, well I, yeah that, that Reese Witherspoon movie that was basically the entire point of uh, that, that I didn't see that, she did some movie about backpack in the Appalachian Trail okay um, that was written by a woman who did it in like the 80s or something it's called okay. Wild Something Wild Something I don't Wild remember. Horses I don't yeah, know it came out like a, uh, less than a year ago <laughs> But that was kind of the point of it was like a woman alone by herself on the trail is in much more danger than a guy uh, by himself on the trail because, uh, you know, obviously everything that that could, po- everything that could possibly happen is uh, worse for a woman because no guy's – very very often is a guy going to be, um, you know, preyed upon or sexually assaulted or just yeah. seen as being weaker um, because of who they are. Yeah. Um, so even a woman on the road is still a little more dangerous in general yeah. than think. I don't know. I, like, I'm a bit fearless in that. And, I mean, half the time I'm on the road, I'm on the road with a car full of comics, so it doesn't really matter. Yeah. As long as you're um, with people, that's fine. It's the being alone part. Yeah. Like, there's... I've never felt... But then again, being on the road, it's like, I'll, you know, go up to Newcastle and take an overnight bus back by myself. And it's yeah. not... It's never... I don't know. I haven't felt in danger by it. I will say that. I've been... Like, you get treated differently... But then you equally get some more advantages. I'm sure I've been given gigs over more qualified men because I'm a woman. But equally, I've been hit on promoters because I'm a woman. Or hit on by promoters. Yeah, anyway. Um, <laughs> but, I, so I don't know. I think that's that's the thought is that why there aren't, women weren't um, sticking with comedy for the long run in the past. And that, of course, is changing. Um, and then, and it should. And I'm, I'm, I'm not going to say that we need a 50-50 balance. I, in my opinion, personally, we just should. Any woman who wants to do comedy should be doing comedy. They should be able to. They should be treated as equally as any man for how, how funny they are. Um, if it ever became an equal 50-50 percentage, or even 75-25 women, that's great. I don't know it will ever be that way because I don't think, gen, uh, like genetics-wise, women want to do comedy as much as men do mm. in general. I guess I don't know. I don't know. I don't. I don't know if I agree with that. To come off sexist, but no, I don't know if I agree with that. I think. I mean, in an ideal world, I think you would have the. It it would be whatever percentage of women are is is in the world population wise. Is it sixty forty that women men? Honestly, no. I, whatever I, that percentage yeah, whatever is, it should be the should same, be the same in comedy. Because I, I don't know. I like. Ideally, that's fine. Women I just have babies, see, I don't but see, I don't see it becoming that way. Because it's it is a very male dominated industry for two reasons. One, 
men ran in and they it was like no girls allowed. That was unfortunately the, the thing about it. Also, but I don't think women generally want to do comedy as much as men. Really? In general. I don't know. I think that's changing. And I think it so I mean, in the UK I think that the whole no girls allowed thing, that is changing. Yeah. And very much the opposite is that women are being pushed more. And I think, which is a great thing as long as you're pushing the right people. So yeah. if you look at the top women headliners that are on the live circuit right now, they're phenomenal, which I could name a bunch of them, but you guys aren't going to know them. But Sarah Pascoe, Zoe Lyons, um, Carrie Godleman. Oh, um, Carrie Godleman! Yeah, she's phenomenal. No that is. Oh. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> I I'm trying to like I it, but there's I mean, a, for the name of maybe somebody who yeah maybe the three people who will end up listening to this someday if I ever put it out will will we'll, we'll go we'll look them up I'll, yeah. or I'll look them up because I always yeah. care about what's yeah um, but then there's also um, the next level of women who are not yet on TV but are headlining who are doing really interesting. Things like Beck Hill and Rialina are two completely different female comics, but one of them does um, more alternative. She does a lot with pop up books. Um, she's like like every um, Edinburgh, she'll get like loads of five star reviews. Really interesting comic, really great comic. And then you have Rialina, who's doing a lot of um, crossing of the line, a lot of like talking about PC terms and political correctness in life in our comedy just really interesting so i think i don't know there i think to say that women don't want to do comedy as much as men is not correct um i mean if i'm wrong i'm wrong that's fine that's just or at least that's my perception in the uk yeah it's not an opinion to try and put it's like no women don't want to do i just don't think generally women want to do it as much as men and if i'm wrong I'm wrong. That's fine. I know there's women who want to do comedy, and they should do comedy, and that's great, and it's fine. Yeah. And we're also at the beginning, I've been talking about this for a while, that we are at the beginning, if not the middle, of a new comedy bubble, same thing, 70s and 80s, where now everyone wants to do comedy. And part of the reason why that is, is because of this, because of podcasting. Comedy has become so much more accessible to people between podcasts and internet and whatnot. Like, if you look at all the top podcasts, all the top podcasts across the board are done by comedians and NPR. That's it. Like, there's a few that's, that, that break it in here, but majority of it is comedians are doing podcasts, not even comedy podcasts. Doug Benson does a movie podcast. Granted, it's hilarious and funny, but yeah. he does a podcast that's listed as movies. So if you like movies, it's a top-rated podcast. You're probably going to end up listening to it. And then now he's a comedian. Now you become familiar with him. You become familiar with the other comedians that come on the show. And then now you're a comedy fan. And that's a great thing that we're at that because we want more people to still come to shows, more people to see us perform. And everyone else performed. Then we want people to be trained not to heckle too. You listen to enough comedians talk about how much hecklers suck, and how no, you're not helping. Hopefully, it'll start influencing people to, to realize, oh, you're right. I'm not helping. I won't heckle. But uh, the problem that is, you also have a ton more people in the business now uh, yeah. trying to be comedians, and that's one of the things that you brought up. That you know, it was easier six six or eight years ago. Because there wasn't as many people doing it as it is now. Six, eight years ago, you know how difficult it was actually to find anything on the internet compared to now? Like, yeah. just finding a listing of open mics is near impossible now. Or near impossible then. Yeah. Now, not so not so difficult at all. There's there, I, don't know, I, run, I run a site that lists all the ones in, within two hours of Boston. Because I want to make sure that information is on the internet. Um, you know, Sean Carter's been doing a great job with keeping his list on Unseen as updated as, uh, updated as possible, too. Um, so, anyway. 
that's um, you know that that's the good thing about being at the big you know bubble. I mean, you know, now you're but you're having to, we're, we're all having to fight against more people, more voices around us, which makes it a little harder to get noticed. Right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, being a woman, I'm well, sure you it's need a little like, easier. But. Yeah, I mean, again, it's um. Well, you got to have a USB like your unique selling point in uh. For that sounds like such a fucking technical USB. term for some job. I know. Uh, <laughs> it's like, it's like you, that's, I, feel, I feel like that's the equivalent of some office jobs version of SEO for marketing. Like that yeah. is those letters. Like no, we just say USB all the time. Um, I do like again. I it's it's a really controversial um, stand or not controversial. It's a hard stem point to have on the whether or not it's easier. Um, to be a woman in comedy now because it is I don't know exactly what the effects are like I know there are some gigs I won't get because I'm a woman and there are some gigs I will get because I'm a woman I know that a lot of agents right now are looking to up the females they have in their stable so therefore I might get signed easier than a man who is better than me because they're looking to up that gender balance but equally, there are a ton of gigs out there who are have requested not to have females on their bill. So it's that's so archaic, right? And and then I mean, there I'm sure are it still happens here. But yeah. I, I rarely hear about it. Occasionally, yeah. I'll hear about it, or I'll run to somebody who will say the same thing. Like, no, I guess she was funny for a woman. Yeah. But, but then that, is it like that's becoming a lot, it's becoming a lot more less. less and then there are promoters who are you know if a venue comes and says I want to build comedians but we don't want any women on them then most promoters will walk away or say no they're funny we're doing it yeah. doing it um, and so it like it is a tricky thing because if you're not if you're not living it then it's really easy to it to say well if there are less women in comedy than they're like the stereotype is that they're having a much harder time. And I guess I don't know if I'm having an easier or harder time because I'm a woman. I also don't know if it's because I'm an, I'm an American. I don't know if I'm having an easier time because I'm an American in England. On one hand, there's a lot of xenophobia towards Americans in England. So that's going to hurt me. But on the flip side of it, it makes me unique. So I, I, like, I honestly, I don't know if it makes it easier or harder being a woman in comedy. I know that probably um, the best time to start comedy as a woman probably would have been six years ago because right now, in a time where the industry is welcoming women in, you already have that experience. Yeah. Whereas if you start comedy as a woman now, there are so many women starting comedy now that, again, that advantage you'd have from being a woman is less than it would be if you had more experience, if that makes sense. No, totally makes sense. Um, and if you like equally if you started start now, comedy 15 years ago, then it's going to be a lot harder because it was very sexist 15 years ago. So, it is now. Yeah. yeah. So there is, there is that, but there's also the risk that if you're fighting against the public's perception that women aren't funny, then putting any female forward isn't going to help that stereotype. It's got to be the talented women yeah. and obviously there are a number of talented women but there are obviously a lot of untalented women equally as so there are talented men and untalented men so i think that if you actually put a woman forward for a job just because she's a woman not because she's ready for it that actually that could hurt the 
that could hurt the stereotype. That's that's but, the exact thing that I always worry about or think about in my own head. It's like, is is this person getting it because we need because we're pushing women's like example there's here there's the Boston comedy chicks that do showcases of all women and we have the women in comedy festival here in Boston as well and there's fantastic women on the women in comedy festival and I don't go to see any I, I for no reason it's not like oh boycotting the Boston comedy chicks showcases now nah, I just don't go to them because of timing or whatever day I'm whatever it happens to be but I will look at their lineups and just see someone I was like. She's been doing like three months. Why are you putting it on? on right. Because well, there are enough women that are have been have the experience and have the skill. So yeah. we just it's about finding them. But it's equally, I mean, if you go into any job in the real world um, that is trying to up the female balance, they're going to look for a like the right female. So it's not about putting any female on, but finding the right female. Yeah, that's what should be happening. And some, unfortunately, it seems like sometimes it's not. Right. So like it's because you have to like you're. You want to push more women, but when you're pushing women, you're not always pushing the best. Right. So, but which is why, again, like if you started comedy six years ago in the UK as a woman, because there are so few, there are fewer people of that experience and that skill, they're actually getting more work, which, which is, is great. Yeah. Um, um, now, when you, what brought you to London originally? Uh, I know we talked about this at the Christmas party back in December, but yeah, uh, landscape architecture. Okay, landscape architecture. Um, are you still doing that, or didn't I you just stop? quit? To, well, no, I did, I'm on sabbatical as of two weeks ago. Okay, because I remember, weren't you when you went and decided to do comedy? Weren't you thinking about getting rid of your job? Uh, I, I, granted, this was six months ago the last time we talked. No, I... So, and I was drinking, so I don't remember a lot of it. I, yeah. just remember, <laughs> I have to talk to her again because it was a fascinating conversation. Uh, I moved over there six years ago to do landscape architecture. Three and a half years ago, I started comedy. A year and a half ago, I went part-time at my job. That's what it was, part-time. Yeah. Um, as soon as I got indefinitely to remain, I now have a passport in the UK, which is great. So now I'm going to... Does that make you a citizen? Or yeah. Okay. I, I, so, I I have, so I have dual citizenship, which basically means I don't need to be sponsored by any company. I can do whatever I want, uh, which That's means good. that I'll be able to spend, you know, like four months in London, four months in the US, and like a month in Edinburgh, which I realize is only nine months. Um, but and there's, and there's three I'm for. Let's <laughs> bet on the moon. Um, <laughs> no, there's a, the great thing about, well, because the, the, there are tons of comedy festivals. There's, um, a bunch in Australia, um, Singapore, a lot that, so a lot of the UK comics will travel certain months of the year. So if you're London based, I'd say 70% of. I, that could be a grossly wrong percentage, either high or low. 70% of comics go up to Edinburgh for the Edinburgh Fringe every year. And it's just what you do for three or four weeks, spend a crap load of money, do 100 gigs. And it is, uh, it used to be that it was just all paid venues and you'd spend about, you know, five to 15,000 pounds to put on a show and get noticed. But now there's like two or 3,000 shows every year. Um uh, do you, do you, been, oh, I know what it is, but I do have a couple questions about. You've done? Have you done the at yeah. Edinburgh? Okay. So I've done it. Um, the first year I just went up for a week and did spots. In the last two years, I've done the full run, which is three and a half weeks, doing like your show every single day. Now, I may be wrong about this, and that's why I'm glad to have talked to somebody who's been to it. Because wasn't it originally the Edinburgh Comedy Festival? 
And then didn't somebody start Fringe Festival around it? Yeah, I think and then it used Fringe to be Festival like basically became legitimate because they were it got so big and they were yeah. Like, like basically, like the people who couldn't get something. into the festival decided to start their own festival around the festival. If that's yeah. the way I understand it, I believe so. Because that is fucking amazing. Yeah, somebody's like, oh, we can't come to your party. We're going to start our own party right around your party, and our party just got big. Yeah, like our party's just as big as yours, and now. No, we everyone wants to come to our party as much as as the other one. Yeah, no, and it, yeah, which is it? It is huge, and it started out by just having paid venues where you all the shows are ticketed, paid, but you also have to pay a crap load of money to put them on. So then, Pretty which was still right, and, yeah. and then there is basically kind of a fringe of a fringe. <laughs> so there's the free festival that started, and that started about. 15 years ago, I really should know this. Um, but I mean, no, you're, you don't need to be the, <laughs> the, the, yeah, the, the official historian of the Edinburgh Festival. Uh, Edinburgh, by the way. Yeah. I've been there, I know. Okay. I'm still American, <laughs> so I have to say it the American way, otherwise, somebody will punch me. It's like occasionally I, I, I say Napolitan instead of Neapolitan. Oh. And someone's like, what is wrong with you? I'm like, that's how it's supposed to be said. Never mind. <laughs> um, so that started about 15 years ago. Just basically saying people, like, you shouldn't have to pay 15,000 pounds to put on a show and inevitably lose a lot of money. So they started the concept of free shows where people can go and then pay, donate what they think is worth. Um, which is now again huge that has since split off into two and then three and then four and now there's like a few different like free festival companies um and yeah it's for a while it was seen that the free shows were not as high quality as the paid ones yeah because they were also more alternative ads yeah and- yeah, yeah yeah but now there's a lot of really like pros highly regarded comics who are going free festival as well well it's also the the entire comedy genre in general is is, is that's moving towards the alternative style comedians now yeah. like what's mainstream now for the most part is what was considered alternative years ago is that the case here because I, I think so yeah. really i may i maybe just need to go see more comedy in the u.s because i have seen very little what i would Pen is alternative comedy. In fact, we had a big conversation also, yeah. about it after Wednesday night. I mean, alternative I, is also still a kind of sketchy term because I don't know if anybody can actually truly describe what alternative comedy is. We can just kind of point to other people and go, well, we don't know what alternative is, but that person's alternative. Like Maria Banford is considered one of the greats of alternative comedy. And think about how big she is. I don't know how, yeah. how much you hear about it, but she's, pretty, she's a pretty big deal yeah, now yeah, yeah. here. You know, like she sold out Wilbur. Uh, theater here in Boston, which is what twelve hundred seats, it's not a lot. It's not stadium, but it's a yeah. Lot. But then you have Bill Burr, who did nineteen sold out shows at the Wilbur, yeah. which means he probably could have filled the um, Boston Garden twice. Yeah, and he did nineteen sold out shows, and nobody would ever consider him alternative. Right. So, or Kevin Hart, no one considers Kevin Hart alternative, and he's still selling out. More shows and yeah. more stadiums than anyone else currently. Right, like literally, he has the Guinness record of more of most consecutive sold out shows or something like that. Oh, um, didn't realize that, but yeah, I, I guess I just I haven't seen as much alternative on the not like just on the normal 
yeah. live circuit. And again, it could just be my perspective and the perspective of the people around me because we tend to listen to more like Pat Oswalt. But I'd say, like, things. take away the top tier of comedians. Like, oh, take yeah. them away. Look yeah. at just the, the live, lower. like the the live circuit that you and I are performing on. That's where I don't see alternative comedy. Uh, yeah, see, I disagree with you because I think they're all being influenced by the top level, like Chris Coxon. I right, but consider... he but he's not. He gigged on Wednesday night for the first time in a year and doesn't want to do comedy anymore. So I wouldn't put him as like a. He, he was phenomenal, and, yeah. but he was also uh, apparently brought on as like the different act of the night. Like that's why Rick Holden was like, I, you know, want you on the night, and he was phenomenal. And I had a couple friends in the audience who were like, you know, he was my favorite of the yeah. night. And but you don't see that comment. often. You don't he, see that very often especially done very well as well as he does but yeah. he would he's a good example of somebody who's doing you know an all who's basically an all comedian because his character is so outlandish and it's more about I mean my understanding of what all comedy is it's more about who and what they're doing or uh, uh, see I can't even explain it now uh, it's more about how they're doing it than what they're doing like um, similar to what's saying what's um uh, what do they call the non-comedy guys? Um, meta-comedy. Where it's not, it's less about the jokes you're saying yeah. and the more the way they're being delivered, in theory. Um, like, um, anyway. I think... I, I guess I, just, I haven't seen it as in such a high percentage as I do in the UK. And that could be just because my... I've only gigged over here. I've yeah. only visited... You know, you could... I've done less than 50 shows in the US, probably. Yeah. Less, definitely less than 100 where yeah. so it, like it, I it, my experience is not there like, but um but I also I mean, there's, there's a fair amount but it's not like you're doing a show it's not like there's like if there's 12 people on a show six of them are all comics you may get two alt comedians in a 12 person lineup but that's two more than we would probably have seen a couple of years ago true but so that I'm is out of all the shows that I've seen that is the only character act I've ever seen Oh, I can name a couple. Uh, but here in Boston, and but in you Boston. also gig yeah. a lot more. So yeah. if you say, "All right, I've been to fifty comedy shows in Boston," you're like, "Yeah, I've seen one." Yeah, so, but I guess the other thing that I thought was interesting that was um, the conversation that was started <laughs> uh, after Wednesday night was um, people. The, this is from Boston Comics saying that they are cautious in terms of their. Um, they want to be politically correct in their comedy. And that even though comedy should inherently approach a line, question the line, cross the line, and figure out where that line is, is that they, as a comic, were afraid to do that because they everything is videoed and everything's on social media. And if you cross the line too far once, then you know your career can be over. And that so just that comics are guarded like in the Boston area. This just one comic who Mentioned it, I, but I the it. comics are guarded, and which I found quite interesting. Yeah, and it does. I like. I've had the problem myself, thought wise. Um, I've heard of the same thing from other people. In fact, uh, a, a comedian, female comedian, just did her last show. We did a show together Sunday. She did her last show because she's a lawyer, um, and she is getting like mo- she's moving up in the ranks of her uh, lawyerness. Um, yeah. <laughs> her, her what do they call them? People of lawyers all together, like the, the guild. Firm. No, I've not. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, her law firm, probably Murder. not the one I was looking for, but war. she's getting more recognized in a law firm, and she's worried that she's going to go on stage. And she is very, I say bland, not as an insult, but as in um, offensiveness. She's not offensive at all. She's she's very middle of the road. 
um, delightful, slightly goofy, but she would never, ever say anything that would offend anybody, but she's quitting comedy because she's now getting up in the ranks and she doesn't want to accidentally say something that's going to affect her career. And me working in radio, I've had that fear from, from the start that I'm going to say that everybody's videotaping everybody and I'm so, even though I'm a nobody piss ant, barely open micer comedian in the Boston area that nobody gives two shits about, I still have that fear that I'm going to say the wrong thing on stage while I'm trying to work something or we don't even care about context. They won't even regard that the context is a joke or that I'm being satirical and they're going to film it or they're going to blog it. Jezebel's going to pick it up and now all of a sudden I'm the asshole misogynistic guy who's talking about rapes or whatever they want to make it turn out to be. Um, and then now I'm pretty much black-labeled from the people and I'm, I have, my phone starts blowing up from 500 hate tweets a day from women feminists that's like, you're the worst thing that happened to the comedy and this is why nobody wants to go to comedy shows because people like you. It's such a rare thing to happen. But it is something that people think of. Like, if the big guys are getting... Even not only the big guys, there are every day. Like, there's... there's there, I'm not saying there's a war against comedy, but there are certain organizations like Salon. I don't know if Salon has ever... Salon or Jezebel have ever written a positive review of any comedian ever. Like, the only time they mention a comedian is when they're tearing them down. Yeah. Because they said something that is slightly offensive. You know, Louis C.K. was getting it with his SNL bit. I don't know if you heard about that over there, but... Yeah. He, he, yeah. So, I, it's... Is, is the, the fear of being called out on a joke for being offensive as prominent? Is that a thought over in England right now? Yeah, I would say it's less so than it yeah. is over here. Because they're a little more welcoming and they kind of understand. Like, is there is there a cultural difference why they would be less likely to call foul play on a joke than here in America? Do you know? Do you think? Um, Opinions are okay. <laughs> and it's okay to not have an opinion on that question, too. Um, I think there's just less of a, like, take it and run assumptions. Like, if you say something that seems like it's crossing the line, then somebody will listen to the joke. And so just because you use a bad word in a joke doesn't mean you're being offensive. Just they'll listen to the joke and decide if it is offensive. Like, it's not that you can be a racist on stage and that's okay. That's not the point. Okay. But so there are- if you... Uh, yeah, I mean, if you if you make a joke that isn't offensive, if you actually listen to the to what it the is context. saying, the context. I guess there's maybe just more awareness on the context, yeah, or I, that people there is um, there's a bigger because people. I think I don't I, I I don't know why it is, but people I feel like are pushing boundaries in what they're saying, or they're more freely saying things. Okay. Like one of the problems I notice here is why a lot of this happens is people are are flat out ignoring the context of a joke. And a great example of that was when Stephen Colbert got um, all all up in trouble for um, doing the the Redskins Asian uh, joke. He was making a joke about the Redskins owner. Obviously, the Redskins title is very offensive to some people. Um, everybody, I don't know. Native Americans. Everybody. Yeah, everybody. My, my grandmother, um, if she was still alive, but um, he, he was making a satirical joke about how Dan Snyder, the owner of the Redskins, has now started another thing called the uh, an Asian um, program to fund them or whatever it was. It's called the Cheeky Cheeky Jinx or whatever it was. 
So Sue Pack, I can't believe I remember her name, was just some Asian blogger, got all offended by that, when was like, ah, take his job away! And yeah. went to it and he was like, listen, he was saying that is just as bad as if they did that. Yes. He's not saying that this is what you should do. She goes, oh yeah, no, I completely understand it. But he still shouldn't have said it. It's like, you know the context was a joke and it was supporting right. the other thing and you're blatantly ignoring that. It's just, like, I worry about it because uh, a good example, personally, myself, with worrying about the context is I have a joke I had, I don't know if I still do it anymore, I know if I do, I don't know if I ever do it again, where I talk about um, uh, just the, the basis of it is I met a woman at late at night. Uh, it's a joke I call the law and order. I meet somebody late at night. She was going, uh, we were staying on a street corner outside of a thing. We were talking, having a conversation. She was waiting for an Uber. I was like, well, I don't mind. We'll just talk while you go, while, while we wait for her. She said, yeah, we had a great conversation. She gets car drives away. My fear is that something would happen to her I'm now the last known person to be with her. That's when the t- law and order detectives Green and Briscoe yeah. come in my work and I'm now falsely accused. And the problem that I had with it is when I started doing the joke, is like now I'm falsely accused of raping her or sexually assaulting her or whatever that is. And I had to stop saying that because as soon as the mention of the word, people just <gasps> Yeah. I'm not talking about raping her. I'm not talking about, I'm not obviously making light of, of it. It's a very big fear that something would happen to somebody and that I could be falsely accused of it. It's whatever people don't like it. I don't care. That's fine. They don't yeah. have to like the joke. I, but I tried to make that as funny as possible. But I have to dance around certain words because those trigger words will just turn an audience off real quick. Like if you just say the word rape, even if you're not making a rape joke, if you just happen to mention the word rape, audience shut down. Yeah. You know, so. Well, there are certain, like, I mentioned her earlier, but Rhea Lena, who's a good friend of mine, is doing um, a show in Edinburgh called Taboo Raider, and it kind of, it actually touches on all of those things, and, I mean, she, like, I guess it's called the euphemism treadmill of, like, certain words that become offensive, but she's also looking at, like, what the origin of political correctness comes from, and, like, what words mean and it's I do not do as good of a job explaining this at her but it's there I mean certain words are offensive to certain communities certain words have historical reasons why they're offensive um, and there are other words that don't necessarily have historical ties to them but are then become offensive because of society but we're not actually listening to it so like for example um in so in boston we call like liquor stores package stores right and we like packies like right it's you know it doesn't offend anybody here in the uk packy is the most offensive offensive word to anybody from pakistan like like you you can't you just can't. And yeah, so, here in America, we just find much worse words to say than just baggy. Like, right. And it was like, this is the worst that we're going to call you. But it, <laughs> it's, um, so, I mean, I had written a joke about it, and it's an interesting joke because those audience members who are smart enough to say, okay, you're not being offensive, and then there are audience members who are going, oh, you just use that word. That's, no. Yeah. But I, I think... Um, it, I mean, it does have to do a lot with the context and what you mean by it and what the intent is. Um, 
But I also think that what is interesting is uh, the ability of comedy to talk about those issues as well. Absolutely. And I think that is, I think, I don't know, what, what I hear from, I mean, there are larger, or like more successful, higher profile comedians who are doing that. And I haven't heard a lot of that on the open mic circuit in Boston, which is interesting. Well, also if you're if you're going to take on any subject that is, you know, in the in the mainstream that has a poignant position, it's really difficult to do it and make it funny. If you're a newer comedian, then you just yeah. No, I mean you could try to, but it's also not on your radar of being able to do. Like I would love to do social commentary. Um, I stick mainly to personal stories and, and yeah. incidents myself because that works better than when I try to put up my opinion of popular culture. Because um, most of my popular, most of my thoughts on popular culture is you're all wrong, <laughs> and it's very attacking. And I know that, and I wish I could be the John Stewart of pop culture and reference of things that we do every day. Like, okay, everything that we that society loves, I hate. Yeah, not on a reason, but I. Like, I'm so sick of hearing about bacon. Like, if you want to get an audience on your side, you, you mention how much you love beards, bacon, and weed, and they're automatically on your side. Those are three. I love bacon, but I just hate hearing about it. I think, <laughs> I think beards are, my joke about beards is that they're like reality shows. Not everyone has one. None of them are any good. But we all love them, and nobody knows why. Uh, and that immediately turns off because everyone's like, oh, beards are the best thing ever. No. My opinion, but and then I don't smoke weed. So yeah. I don't want to go on stage talking about weed. And when I hear somebody talk about weed, it just makes my blood boil. Smoke all the weed you want. I don't want to hear or talk about it. Like, my roommate smokes a ton. Um, and it just smells nauseous to me. I don't, I don't like the smell of it. I've smoked it. It's not one of those, it's a bad thing that I'm not. I've done it. <laughs> I just don't. It just doesn't appeal to me. It smells terrible, but that's my personal opinion. And I've never too many burnouts that's just like, oh, you're like the worst person in the world. Please go away. So I have that on it. But we can, you know, I, I guess can't do all those things because it's it's a ten times harder fight to get people on board. And last night alone, we did a, a show. Three comedians came up, talked about how much they loved weed. Another comedian came up and talked about how he just how he had to quit weed. And the audience hated him and literally booed him. Literally booed him the moment he talked. And his joke was, I had to quit weed. For uh, two years ago, I had to quit weed. And joke here, there, there, and then he goes back. But hey, now I'm back to smoking weed again. Yay! But they were already turned off because he said, I quit smoking weed. Like, I, that's, it's an uphill battle because everybody want, everyone wants, you know, mm. the cool, be the cool person. By the way, what time do we, are we oh, good till? I, uh. It's 12.54 right now. Okay. Probably, like. 10 minutes. Okay, correct. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's fine. But um, I guess, I, I don't know. I guess I, one of the things I'm looking forward to spending more time in this country in the future then is getting into that and seeing actually how that develops. Because right now I have a very, very narrow uh, sampling of what U.S. comedy is. Like I yeah. have seen, you know, obviously like videos of all of the big guys and I've seen like the open mic and I have very little intermediate experience in between yeah um, alright let's uh, change something because the, technically the point of the podcast I'm doing is to talk to people about their day jobs so let's get into uh, the landscape architecture real quick um, why did you how and why did you get into landscape architecture which I think <laughs> is kind of a uh, it's basically landscape architecture is designing um, 
public space. Okay, there you go. I was going to say bed gardens. I'm like, that sounds very, very, yeah. very medial. So I actually, I, I used to be a marine biologist um, until I was like 21-ish um, and still do work with that, but then just it wasn't creative enough. So I then went to Italy to take classes in graphic design and culinary art at which point I decided to go into graphic design which I found a school in Savannah that also had yep architecture and I was like oh architecture that's the perfect combination of math and creativity and then uh so I was going to take classes in both of those but they were like well why don't you just pick one of the two because if you take classes as a non-degree student they won't count towards anyway so just start at one if you want to transfer you can and so i was like right now i was like just literally on a whim in mid conversation was like well architecture so i went into architecture but uh never actually went to the school because my um my brother-in-law at the time was like you know we're moving to boston to be near you and i was like uh, boston because at this point i was thinking about moving down there so then i looked up architecture schools in boston and started at the Boston Architectural um, College, did a year and a half of that, and realized that I actually wanted to go into landscape architecture, which is like public space, large scale, because it just, I thought was closer to land art and had more of a sculpture side of things. So then transferred to Harvard, did my master's there, and um, graduated, then wanted to live in Europe for a year. So that's why I went to London for a year in 2008 and six years later I have a citizenship and I'm not doing it anymore but <laughs> so you went there for a year for school or you no just, for just to work no 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 right, to, to work. work to work so, so you were about, you, you were there like, was a firm that actually is based in cause the chair of my department had recommended me to this woman who has an office in Boston and London um, and so she approached me and I was like well if I work for you I'm going to work in London because I want to live abroad for a year so she initially sponsored me. Twenty-seven. Okay. Um, so you're twenty. You're 27, working. 28, company yeah. has offices in both. You were working for them when you were twenty-seven. In After money. yeah, a couple of years, then moved companies to this big corporate one because of the economy, and I've been there ever since. Um, and how long were you living in London before you started doing stand-up? Two and a half years, three okay. years. So two and a half, three, three years. years. Three years you were living in London, doing landscape architecture, and all of a sudden something made you decide to start doing comedy. What was that? Um, a friend of mine at my office decided to take a comedy course and was like, do you want to take it? And I was like, yeah. And I, uh, I actually don't, I because I wasn't ever one of those people that loved comedy their whole life. I saw one live stand-up show before moving out there, which I still remember. And I was luckier than I ever knew that I was. But when I was doing marine biology, I was working with a program with a charity called Ocean Matters. uh, And I was in Grand Cayman for a month doing coral reef research. And for our one night out, we went to see Mitch Hedberg in Grand Cayman. So I got to see Mitch Hedberg live when I was 17. And I... Still, That's a hell of a first show. I know. I see, and and having not really known what stand up comedy was before seeing it, 
we were all going, is, is he pretending to be high? Is he actually high? Which the answer is, yeah, he was actually high. And he just, he had his hood up the entire time. Uh, didn't really look at the audience. And I, like, I still remember some of his jokes as well, which is incredible to me now as a stand-up comedian to look at um, an, a single headliner 17 years ago and still remember some of his set list. Yeah. Which, because I, I don't, you know, if I saw a headliner three years ago, I wouldn't remember any of their set. Yeah, I mean, like, I could still probably recite majority of Dennis Leary's No Cure for Cancer uh, from the first time I listened to it in middle school. We were about the same age, so what, sixth grade? Yeah. Yeah. 94, 95, it came out, something like that. And uh, I could probably still recite majority of it to this day, but that's also because I listened to it over and over and over yeah. again. I didn't hear it once and immediately pick it up, so that's... Yeah. That, uh, something that affected you that much yeah. that you would still be remembering. Like I said, that my time. style is not at all like him. So, <laughs> uh, but anyway, so I like saw then stand-up comedy probably two or three times over my life before this. And um, it, my dad doesn't remember this, but once he was like, you would be really good stand-up. Coming obviously based in nothing, but oh, he doesn't yeah. remember this at all. You say something funny, somebody eventually somebody's gonna go, you know, you should be dead or coming. Yeah, you're yeah. a funny person. Uh, but yeah, and then more decided, people stop listening to the people that tell them that. That <laughs> is a true statement. Uh, yeah, and then my I so I just took this course, and uh, day one of the course, I I mean I it was one of those things. Was, this has happened to me on multiple occasions, which probably is an indication that I jump into things without thinking about them first. Really? Um, the very, fact that you've had four different careers that take people years upon years to learn to get into. Yeah, that's and right. now you're jumping into college. Uh, the very first day of architecture school, we were all going around in our studio and had to say our name and our favorite architect, and I couldn't name a single architect. I just decided to go into architecture school. No, I did. So I just copied the person before me. And <laughs> I really love that guy too. No, She's that a is. Woman. Oh, uh, yeah. I. It was exactly what happened. The person before me was like, "I really love I.M. Pei," and I was like, "That's good. Good. We'll go with that one." <laughs> and then equally, the first day of the stand-up comedy course, like I hadn't seen stand-up comedy. I couldn't. I didn't. Like, I, I don't know. I think I probably said Mitch Pedberg just because that was the only comic that I could name. Or I, or maybe, I don't know, I maybe had said, I don't know, maybe Louis C.K. at the time. Like, I just, I made something up because I was like, I don't know. People were saying names of people that I had no idea. And still to this day, for the first two or three years, actually, no, I still do it. Um, people mention comics to me all the time and I just have an iPhone note of like comedians that I really should Maybe know. Try. Actually, this will be funny if we go to the list of people that I really should have known. But uh, <laughs> some of the people You're, that people are like... It's essentially like the Captain America list from, from yeah. Captain America 2. The one yeah. where he's just like, oh, it's my list of things I need to check out. Oh, wait, no. I, uh, should, I may have deleted ones um, that... Okay, let's go to the... Who else is on here? Because, oh, Mark Thomas, I really should have known. Chubby Brown on there. Oh, Kevin Hart was on there at one point oh. in time. Yep, there you we go. Take a picture of that screen, is it? No, it's really embarrassing. No. I, don't I know, that's why I want to take a picture of I it. I don't, like, I don't, I don't actually. There's names that, you'll, you'll mention the less embarrassing names. Yeah. Uh, it just, uh, it just, no, I don't want to. No, I can't. <laughs> it's too embarrassing. But anyway, can so. Can I at least look at it and I won't say it out loud? I don't know if I trust you, but yes, you can. I won't say that loud. Okay. I at least want to look at this list. But the uh, list, are, but yeah. It, Jerry Seinfeld, you're saying? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, I, uh, 
I go to this course and people are like, don't even. All right. Don't. I'm not going to say anything, but. Oh, oh no, 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 no. Okay. Some of these were. Okay. I. Okay. Eddie Murphy and George Carlin. They were very specific <laughs> bits on there okay. that I was told to look up because okay, I did a show on bereavement. That's why. Okay. Fair enough. All right. So. Uh, <laughs> Anyway, this is why I was like, and the, I can't. my eyes immediately driven to the ones that be the most embarrassing, which contextually was yeah, no, it true. was just their bits on yeah. on death and dying. Anyway, so I go into this course day one, and this happens, and I was like, great. But then the first day of the course, we just had to stand up and uh, just talk for two minutes. It didn't have to be funny. It was just about something about us for two minutes, um, and I just I loved it, and it just felt. Right, and I remember calling my sister leaving the course that night. Like, still, I'd never done a gig just day one of the course and just said, in some way or another, I will be doing this for the rest of my life. And, yeah. Now, I'm very uh, interested in the way that people have to deal with their... Because any other job in the world, any other career, you basically, outside of schooling, if you want to have that job in that career, you just get that job. And then you're getting paid, and now you're that person. Comedy and entertainment in general, anything in the arts, you have to start doing that unpaid for a long time. So there's so many entertainers. Like the trope is if you're an actor, you wait tables. If you're a comedian, you work in a, in a coffee shop. You know, if you're an artist, you have a rich girlfriend. Like if you're a painter, you have a rich girlfriend. There's those troops that people Well, yes and no. I mean, I think I, I, comedy is a bit different though, because um, like musicians get trained in the same way that lawyers do where they'll go to university and they will study and they will do that there is like a formal training if you look yeah, at a formal training of comedians it's like yeah you can take a comedy I don't know if they have comedy courses over here but yeah you yeah. can take a couple comedy courses and it's fine but that's you not still. the same thing as doing a undergrad for four years and then getting a master's and you're in acting you know like there yeah. there is a certain set of schooling so then when actors then have to leave that and be unpaid or work for very little money it's hard Whereas I think comedians, the first, you know, five years of your career of doing unpaid work for five years is essentially you going to university. That is your university is doing yeah, it. Technically. Uh, and, and I agree with that. Like the open mic scene is where we're learning. It's a comedian's open mic is a musician's garage for the most part. Like that's where they're writing and working and, and uh, perfecting their material. We're doing the same thing in front of an audience there. But even at, you know, to this day, comedians who are 10, 15 years in, un- unfortunately end up having to take unpaid work. But to get to the point where you can be a working comedian surviving off your money, of the money you're making from comedy, or even painters, musicians, to make a livable wage takes so long. And it's still even so rare. I mean, there's bands that I know now that tour the entire world still have day jobs because yeah. the music industry doesn't pay them enough to make a living off of them. Um, and it, I, I find it interesting for how we balance that. Like, if you wanted to be an architect, you get a job as an architect, and you're automatically getting paid. Granted, you went to school and this and that, whatever. But as soon as the moment you start working for a company to be an art, a landscape architect, you're being paid. Yeah, There's I guess so I just in their entire lives. That's different in different countries as well. I mean, granted, so? in the UK, it is changing now. Um, to become more like the U.S., but if you looked at the U.K. comedy scene five, ten years ago, it was like you put in time, which was probably equal to that of a college degree, and after you gigged every single night for four 
six years, you're making a full-time living off of it. Do you think and it's that, easier to make a full-time living in the UK off comedy than it is here in America? Uh, yes, okay. but that is rapidly, rapidly changing. It is way harder now than it was a year ago, and it's way harder a year ago than it was five years ago. Okay. It's sad, but... 10, 15 years in, and they still have to work a day job because... Yeah, I mean, I know life. comedians like that as well in the UK, and it, it obviously changes if you have a family or you don't. I mean, I don't have anybody to look after but myself. So if I make a thousand pounds a month that I can live off of because if I need to buy frozen spinach and ramen noodles, then that's what I will do. Um, but if I have two kids, I, I can't do that. So I like, obviously there's like ramen noodles, not great for kids. Yeah. Well, you know, they like them, <laughs> but it's, um, but they're like, obviously there's a difference between whether or not you can make a livable wage with family and whether or not you can make a livable wage as a single person. Yeah. I mean, this is mostly um, generalizations. Obviously the comedian who's funnier and works harder and is able to promote themselves better. They're going to be able to switch over to being a paid comedian faster than somebody else who doesn't market themselves so well, who is having a strong, harder time yeah. with, with, with material and whatnot, or even yeah. having a car. I, I yeah. know I'm never going to be a touring comedian until I get a car. I can only do shows as far as the... the, the Commuter rail, yeah. The, as far as the T will let me. No, 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 I'm the same way too. But I mean, there is the story, of, like also how much time you put in. Like um, yeah. Jimmy Carr, when he started... Uh, he would double, triple every night. He took a year and he would gig anywhere and everywhere unpaid for a year. He would, and he worked his ass off. Like just would go, if he'd get a gig in, you know, this town, he would look at like any comedy nights within a four, like 50 mile radius and go, how can I do all these in one night? I'll do it. Just give me five minutes. And every single night did at the minimum one, but anywhere between one and five gigs a night every single night for a year and you you do something that frequently then you know you're gonna get noticed you're gonna get better you're gonna get yeah. move up faster so um, but there's also certain gigs that you learn from more than others I think also in general in the UK people invest more into live comedy than they do over here so there physically are more paid gigs I in think. the UK yeah and it's it's a different there are less showcase style gigs so over here I've noticed that there's a lot of Pro nights where people are paying to get in, but most of the acts aren't paid because they're all doing ten minutes. Yeah, right. I don't know. Maybe that's an assumption that's not true. But there's a, well, there's a lot of places like uh, there's still a huge battle with, here with what you should be doing, uh, what you should do that gets you paid, and what doesn't get you paid. Um, like the the acceptance level of like everyone in, in Boston's accepting to do the comedy studio without getting paid. Yeah. Um, whereas people have been fighting UCB. For years, who don't pay any of their art, uh, any of their, yeah. their, their, their acts. Um, there was a discussion recently in the Boston comedy community about doing a college gig unpaid. And it's like, no, colleges have the money, you should be paid for them. Or yeah. people doing um, Gig Salad or one of those websites. It's like, hey, um, when you're accepting lower money and you're undercutting somebody else because you're a lesser, lesser of a comedian than somebody else, you're hurting the scene in general. Yeah. Like, it's great you want to do, great that you're hungry and you want to get stage time, but you're also doing it. Uh, detrimentally to the people who should be getting these gigs because they're better than you um, and you're cutthroating their, their price yeah. that, and then it also affects worth, like what they're worth and et cetera, et cetera. what the general public view is live comedy yeah. like if you're gonna expect people to pay money for comedy they should get what their money is paying for exactly. and so if they're then paying money to see comedians that don't have the skill set that 
they should be getting, then that's also hurting. It, yeah. There's a lot of, because that's, that is, again, with the influx of comedians in the UK, it is happening more and more. And there's, um, there's also discussion on quality control. Like, how do you get, how do you make sure the acts that say that they are good are as good as they are? Like, sure, somebody once paid you to do a 20 minute set. It doesn't mean that you are a qualified opener. Yeah. So, um, and everybody can have a good video because everybody's done one well once in their life. Like so, it's it's really hard to to where you sit in on that standpoint as well. And then there's also like I, another thing of fees in terms of like inside London, outside London, at least in the UK, yeah. is like if you can do four gigs in a night, then no matter how good you are, you're more likely on a Friday night to take a 50 quid gig if it just means that's another 50 pounds. It's not like you're giving up anything else to do that. So... Yeah, instead of doing four shows for nothing, do one show for 50. 50 and no, no, no. It, well, instead of doing like... If you get one show that's 150 and then you could do two shows and your second show is only 50, you're not going to take the 50-pound gig if that's the only show you're oh, doing. Okay. I you're but if you're yeah. going out anyway... You're, you'll you take can... a lesser-paid show if you're getting a bigger pay if you get right. a bigger pay than that. So yeah. Yeah, well, that's just Because if you if you drive if you have to drive two hours to, you know, the middle of nowhere, that's the only gig you're doing for the night. Yeah. You can't. But in one gig for 150 pounds isn't as good as four gigs for 50 pounds. No, and then the last thing I then then we'll I'll let you get back to working online and I have to go back <laughs> to my job. But the last thing is how difficult was it at the beginning working your day job and finding time to do comedy was that uh, like for me I get up at four in the morning every day and I like last night I was out until twelve thirty I'm doing uh, not anymore but there was a time where I was doing five to eight open mics a week and it just drags on you when you do that yeah. now if I got up at eight and worked till five physically I'm a little bit I feel better for that this is uh, did you have that problem with scheduling yeah I I don't I don't function very well with no sleep either so. Um, Oh, I function with zero sleep all the time. <laughs> oh, I can't. And I also, like, I host a lot. And in the UK, there's a lot more um, crowd interaction with hosting, which I find to be a lot harder if I haven't slept because you're thinking more. And I just feel like I don't perform as well if I haven't slept. But that's probably me being a baby. So when I started and I was gigging, I don't know, when I started for the first couple months, it was only one or two times a week. And then after that, it was probably four or five times a week. And that... When I was working full time, like it started out okay, and then as the gigs amped up, I just started burning out, and it got to a point where I just couldn't function. And then I went part time, and then that was great. Um, and now I gig, you know, at least seven times a week. And so I'm. It got to a point again, even seven times a week with twenty hours a week in my day job, I was burning out, and I didn't have enough time. But I'm also promoting a club, so it's not just doing comedy it's also getting people in the door um but yeah just burned yeah. out to a point where i had to quit my job and so now hopefully it'll be a better balance and but things are working out so far that it's been two weeks two weeks so yeah it's not, and i've been here for two that. weeks so <laughs> it's i can't tell uh well so we'll see uh all right i'm gonna get out of here uh, but real quick um next time you're in town I insist on you calling or or get, shooting me an email. Let me know how it's been not having a job. Yeah. And just doing comedy. Cool. Hopefully it's going to be a success story. <laughs> uh, but even if it's not, I want to hear about that because this, I think, to me, that's fascinating watching somebody go 
Watch if somebody else fail. I know. It's entertaining. It's entertaining. Not fail. I want to hear the good stories, too. Even the bad stories. I just want to hear where people come. I find that fascinating. People having to work towards what they want and what they're willing to do, I think, is incredibly interesting. And that's why I started this. And plus, people, I've known too many comedians that have way interesting jobs. And then we're also doing this really cool job that everybody else wants to do. But, like, let's get marketing. I'm sure there's somebody out there who's just like, I like designing outdoor you know it's similar to civil engineering where that's more mathematics than it is design but it's still one of those things like that is a career that's a real career that you could do marine biology real career but you're now taking this other art-esque thing to do as well so i think that's interesting i want to hear about how it works out cool cool thanks for doing this